0: everybody welcome to another episode of the comic source podcast i'm your host jace apologies for this being late really trying to get back on a regular schedule after san diego comic-con and covid and all that sort of stuff so spending the weekend on call for the day job but also reading comics in the hopes of getting a little bit ahead and uh being sure that we have the new comics wednesday spoiler free uh review out on time every week as well as the dc spotlight that's full of spoilers, full reviews that I do with Rocky from Comic Boom. Uh, also should have more content coming in terms of uh, interviews and uh, some other uh, Spawn Dailies coming out and, and a lot of stuff, just trying to to get back in the, the swing of things because uh, COVID really kicked my butt. So uh, with all that being said, let's go ahead and dive in to some of these books, even though it's several days past, uh wednesday i'm still gonna do this spoiler free because that's just how we do it for new comics wednesday so i'm gonna kick it off with the latest issue of x-men it's issue number 13 this is from writer jeremy uh sorry jerry uh duggan cf via is the artist matt millet on colors clayton cowell on letters Obviously, we know that right now in uh, the X-Men titles, they're all tying into the AXE or Axe Judgment Day storyline. I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast, how at San Diego Comic-Con, C.B. Sobolsky specifically said it's not Avengers versus X-Men versus Eternals. He wanted to kind of stress that it's a, it's a very different type of story. You know, Maybe it started out with the Eternals versus the X-Men. We know Druig. Feels that based on the knowledge that the X-Men are have basically become immortal, they're resurrecting themselves at will, that they've become too, too much of a deviant kind of race or species on Earth. And so that his desire was to wipe them out. And uh, once the Hex, these extremely powerful Eternals were unleashed, the X-Men were sort of up against it and the Avengers showed up to help out. So unbeknownst to me um and maybe because i'm not completely caught up on x-men and i haven't been reading kieran gillen's eternals i didn't realize that this wasn't really the end all be all of this story it's not where this idea of judgment day comes from basically that's sort of the first act that sets everything up and the way that the x-men sort of um prevents the Hex from destroying Krakoa and from leaving the mutants what, without a place to live is to create their own Celestial in a way, kind of more closely modeled on their values, the values of humans, the values of um, the Eternals that are more on the side of good, if you will. And uh, they realize it's a risk because Celestials are so powerful. And e- even though they're you know, creating this celestial with their values, supposedly they, they don't really know what the end result is. You know, they're kind of shooting in the dark, so to speak. And sure enough, when this celestial comes to life, the celestial that the uh, Avengers had been using as their, their headquarters, uh, he says, you know, I'm tired of the bickering that happens on this planet between humans and other humans, between humans and mutants and, you know, all these different races, uh, I don't know if anybody's worth allowing to live, basically, and you have, I think he says 24 or 48 hours, something like that, to prove that you deserve to live. That's what Judgment Day is. So all that happened in Judgment Day 2, and it really has kind of flipped the story on its head in terms of what comes next. As far as this particular issue, issue 13 of X-Men, it sort of takes place at uh, concurrently with the second uh, issue of of axe the second issue of the main uh, mini series and as well as death of mutants which I'll I think I'll I'm talking about that in that, this episode as well um but it's they're all taking place at the same time like I said they're all taking place concurrently but this one gives us the perspective uh as this battle's going on as the eternals are and and the avengers are trying to create this uh resurrect this or create this hybrid celestial slash human God. Um What's going on with the battle in terms of what the X-Men see uh, as they're going up against the hex, as there's other uh, factions going on with what's going on with death of the mutants. What are the Eternals up to? How are they getting all the materials uh, together to resurrect this celestial and whatnot? So you, you sort of, uh, you can read this, issue. If you just collect X-Men, you're not reading the main event. You can read this and yeah, it's going to be focused on this other event, this Axe Judgment Day. But if you're not reading any of that, you can kind of read this. You get a little bit of character work. You're still okay. I don't think you're forced to go in and jump on the event if you don't care. Uh, This is sort of showing the consequences and the fallout from the event in terms of how it's affecting the mutants, but you don't necessarily have to go and pick it up. Now, if you're reading the Judgment Day... Uh, uh, event and you're wondering, well, do I need to pick this up again? It, it, I don't think it's necessary a hundred percent. If you want more context and what Gene Gray is thinking as these events unfold, what Cyclops is thinking, you know, how, how the, this new team of X Men is, uh, is faring during the events of Axe, you can. It's going to enrich the event. It's going to make the event feel a little more fleshed out. But if you're looking to save some money and you're only going to buy that main series, I think you can stick with that. That's giving you you know, the big, broad story beats, and it's, it's enough. So uh, you can go either way, I think, and still be okay. Um, as far as the art in this particular issue, it's really strong, especially the color work. I was really blown away by the colors from Matt Miller um, who is is quickly rising up my list of, of colorists to, to watch out for ever since he worked on, um, uh, Charles Soule's run of daredevil. He's been somebody whose work I've really admired, pay attention to. He really selects a brightly colored palette here. And as long time listeners of podcast will know, I'm a big fan of that when it comes to making your book uh, look very traditionally super heroic. So there is that, and there are aspects in here, um, that deal with the X-Men and deal with mutants. They don't have anything to do with the Axe event. So Jerry Dugan is, you know, keeping in mind that, uh, hey, some of the people that read this maybe aren't taking part in the event. They're not reading the Axe event. So let's make sure there's some stuff in there for them as well. There's specifically uh, a text piece from Bart Jones, who is um, Angelica Jones's father. That's Firestar uh, for any – longtime Marvel fans or fans of Spider-Man and his amazing friends cartoon back in the day. Um, so it, that text piece I enjoyed, I got a lot out of it being that I'm a old school Marvel fan and definitely a fan of the animated uh, Batman, uh, Batman, super uh, Spider-Man <laughs> and his amazing friends. So uh, check that out if you are so inclined. So let's go ahead and move on. Uh, next up, we have the brother of all men. This is from aftershock written by Zach Thompson Ian Marin is the artist. I believe he's uh, Irish or Scottish. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's spelled E-O-I-N. Uh, apologies if I'm not. Uh, Mark Engler is the colorist. Hassan Atman El is the letterer. Uh, we talked about the first issue, basically tells the story of this guy who's in World War I, was horribly disfigured uh, in the face, and he wears this sort of partial mask on his face that's like a you know, has facial features that are sort of painted on there, like an eye that doesn't move and whatnot. And, you know, uh, reminds me of, uh, you know, the limitations in medicine early in the um, in the 20th century. Uh, and, and this is based partially on uh, a true story, which when Aftershock does these uh, projects that are based partially on a true story, it makes it so much more compelling to me for some reason. Maybe it's just the idea that they're sort of fantastical stories, stories that are really out there, um, and you know that phrase life is stranger than fiction. Sometimes that's a really at apt way to look at these aftershock books. So, anyway, as I said, it focuses on this guy who uh was uh hurt in the war and becomes a private investigator when he comes back. He's been hired to find a woman who's joined a cult in the Pacific Northwest. And come to find out this guy's brother is a member of the cult as well. So the first issue was sort of esoteric and kind of out there. And I've come to expect that from Zach Thompson. Um, still very compelling and, and very well done, very well paced. Uh, can always count on Thompson to do, uh, to pay attention to the pacing and do a, a great job, but it, I didn't necessarily feel like I had a way in. Um, I was having trouble relating to the story. That all changes with this second issue. It feels a bit more grounded. It feels a bit more. I don't want to say realistic, but the idea, the feeling that it is a true story comes through more. And we start seeing events unfold in um, this cult in terms of what this investigator is finding, in terms of him trying to establish a bond with his brother, in terms of him, you know, investigating and trying to to get access to the leader of the cult, as well as talk to this girl Myr- uh, this girl, Myrtle who he's been hired to find. So uh, I I found this issue to be extremely readable uh, and extremely well-paced once again, much like the first issue was well-paced. Uh, but just a, a, I got more out of this issue. Uh, it started dealing with ideas that weren't quite so out there in new age because that's kind of what this cult is. Again, uh, thinking of of the time that it's set in, you know, the coming out of the 20s into the early 30s, um, you know, World War One uh, has has um, has uh, ended, and you know what? What was the country like at that time? What were people like at that time? What were they looking for uh, in terms of a sense of belonging? And in some ways, a more innocent time. The country certainly wasn't as you know settled in, in terms of hey, there's still plenty of wide open spaces, if you will. Uh, out there at this time, so uh again, more relatable to me, more readable, and the action is also ramping up in terms of um this investigator discovering what's uh discovering that there's some things that don't necessarily make sense you know the the leader of this cult um professing to have these powers and you know magical events and whatnot, and as he's investigating, he's seeing things that are just you know not on the up and up and Um, that this guy's basically a con man, as many leaders of many cults are, you know, as it turns out. So that aspect of the story, kind of the almost crime noirish part of the story is starting to manifest itself as well. So uh, again, Aftershock publisher, uh, I obviously very, very much enjoy. Most of their titles are bang on. So this one is no different. Wasn't sure I was going to like it after the first issue. Uh, But another reminder, as I always say, you got to give Every book, at least two issues, uh, especially because first issues are so hard to do, setting the world, setting up the characters and whatnot. So, uh, I, I, again, the true story aspect of it uh, makes it that much more compelling. So, uh, definitely check it out if you're uh, so inclined. All right. Next up we have from Image Comics, the latest issue of Ordinary Gods. We're up to issue number eight. This is from writers Kyle Higgins and Joe Clark. Felipe Wantanabi is the artist. Colors by Frank William. Letters by Clayton Cowles. So we saw last issue that um, the gods that are trapped on Earth were betrayed by one of their own. Um, she basically is so sick and tired of being imprisoned on Earth, she wants to destroy the Earth, making the assumption that that's going to return her to her realm. Uh, well, that might not necessarily be the case. And the rest of the gods trapped on Earth uh managed to kind of convey that to her and say, hey, wait a minute. Um we might want to stop and think about this in, in terms of what we're gonna do. This might end up making it worse. Now we're be trapped on a you know planet that's not even inhabitable. Um, so uh this is a big story, big in scope. I've talked uh about it at length. We had Kyle Higgins on to talk about it. And We haven't gotten a whole heck of a lot back on the original world, which is really huge and massive in scope. We've had hints of it here and there. But it's definitely a political book in terms of what's going on on Earth with all these different factions, with these gods trying to free themselves, with the members of that world that are over here to act as jailers and what they're up to, and then the faction back from the original world or universe or dimension or whatever you want to call it that have come here because they don't trust the jailers that are here. And they think the the gods uh, may indeed succeed in returning to their, uh, original plane of existence, uh, that they're from. So there's a lot of moving parts here. As I have said before, it's a big, big story. And although this issue is a bit of a setup issue, moving, um, these gods around with what they're going to try next, uh, it helps to kind of flesh out some of the characterization and some of the motivations for some of the characters. And this series continues to be exceptional. The Felipe Watanabe art and the uh, along with the colors, because the, the line work here and the colors work in such great tandem. Frank William uses more natural tones um, in terms of how you want the world to look. And along with the emotionality that Watanabe puts in his line work, both in terms of facial expression and in terms of body language, it works really, really well to make this feel like a grounded story. Because as I've said, it's such a big story in scope and there's such big ideas that the uh, the danger is it becomes, I don't want to say esoteric but it it becomes so big that you can't really relate to it. Like where's your in right now, early on when we weren't sure um, who was a God and who wasn't. And um, you had this uh, idea of people discovering that they've been reincarnating over time. uh, You could kind of relate to it on a level of, Hey, we all go through, um, stages in our life where we're not sure who we are, you know, specifically teenage years, high school, that sort of thing. You're trying to establish your identity, you can feel like an imposter. And, you know, based on people's, you know, choice of profession and um, how successful they are in in life, you know, that can continue beyond those formative years. Uh, But that was definitely a touch point early on. Now that everyone has sort of realized who they are in terms of these gods that are trapped on earth, that relatability has sort of gone away a little bit, but hopefully, um you feel like you know these characters well enough at this point that you don't necessarily need that, um, and you're invested in them enough to want to see what happens next. There are still you know questions of what it means to be human and um, senses of justice and uh, and that sort of thing still to be uh, explored. You know, do these gods deserve to to be trapped on earth? Should they be allowed to return? Um, you know, one of the things that was brilliantly done by Kyle Higgins, and and I said as much when he was on the show was this idea of the different lands or uh, area, regional areas of the original dimension, being named after, you know, emotions, and the, the gods, the rulers of those areas kind of embodying those emotions, you know, whether it be anger or contentment or happiness or whatever. Um, you know, and wanting to see that explored at still at some point. Uh, But that is another point where we can uh, relate to it. But there's been so much action going on lately with uh, and and the political maneuverings of these various factions that we haven't explored that and that we haven't even had that reflected in the characters that are on Earth uh, uh, very much yet. So that is still something that has me coming back because uh, I don't think Kyle would have put it in there if it wasn't going to be a, a touch point at at some level or uh, at some point in the story so we'll have to come back to that and see but meanwhile i'm i'm enjoying it there's a lot of as you can tell uh levels of complexity and nuance in the story and it's something uh, i'm really enjoying plus it's it's very rereadable um because it is so rich and it is such a big story uh, and there's so many characters and moving parts that you can go back and reread it and get more out of it and catch things that you missed the first time around. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have Seven Sons, Part 3, written by Robert Wyndham and Kelvin Mao. Art is by Jay Lee. Colors by June Chung. Letters by Crank. Uh, I'll start with the art first. I mean, it's Jay Lee art. If you've ever seen Jay Lee art, you know exactly what to expect. I'm not a big fan of his style. Never have been. Uh, I appreciate the fineness of his lines. I appreciate his storytelling. Which is very strong, but I just don't care for the the stylized um, way that he draws, particularly if faces. I, faces always feel pinched to me with the um, the features on on the faces just too small <laughs> for the size of face. It's like God, you've got so much face, um, but I can't fault his storytelling. And one of the things I really have noticed and maybe I never noticed this about his art before was how much his style uh, helps to increase uh, the tension in the stories that he's telling. And it definitely gives it a bit of an other world quality. Um, So this story is this idea uh, of an alternate history for the United States or for the world itself, for that matter where uh, this guy wrote uh, a book about seven sons, you know, this is a, I think a Nor- Native American myth uh the seventh son of a seventh son would be like a chosen one or have uh a, you know magical abilities if you will be a savior almost like a christ like figure and so in this alternate history um that's what we're dealing with there's seven sons that were born of a seventh son And this guy writes this book, this prophecy becomes a prophet. He becomes the one that kind of looks after these seven sons. And they're not sure which one of them is basically going to be um, the Messiah, the Savior returned. Um, But in this particular issue, we're getting kind of the perspective of the sons themselves, who they've always lived this, you know, sheltered life, this very gifted life in terms of um, having abilities and always having um, basically the world at their feet in terms of uh, being very famous and being worshiped and um, exploited in a way, but they don't realize it because uh, this, this prophet and it may have been that he did fully believe and want what's best for the world when it's when things started out, but it's sort of clear that he's exploiting these, Um, these seven sons at this point in terms of what power it gives him, how it reflects on him and makes him uh, a very important person and whatnot, while the rest of the world seems to be suffering. Um, It's almost like this idea of this Judeo-Christian myth, if you will, in terms of, you know, Jesus Christ and the return of the savior and everything mixed with this native American idea of the seventh son of a seventh son has caused this particular religion that this that man espouses and these seven sons represent to become almost a de facto world uh, government in a way to the detriment of it, of other beliefs you know and that that's mentioned specifically in this issue about well you, you're free to believe whatever you want to believe that you know that's kind of the part the party line, if you will, but in reality, you know, so many people buy into just this one religion that almost by default, everything else is persecuted or looked down on or doesn't get enough resources because there's not enough people that actually believe it. And that goes for ideas of race and um, kind of um, financial security and, and, and everything. You know, you you have to be on the inside to sort of be living a decent life. And if you're not on the, on the inside, if you're not buying into these beliefs, if you're not, you know, somebody that's recognized as a member of this, then you're sort of um, in trouble, you know, whether it be uh, religiously persecuted or, or looked down upon or uh, struggling to uh, just survive in terms of financially having a home, having food, that sort of thing. So it's a very um, depressing world in that way. Um, But that's all sort of in the background, uh, at least for the first couple of issues, although it's touched upon. And this specific issue, we're talking about one of the sons as the the day of of revelation or whatever, who is going to be revealed of the seven sons to truly be the supposed savior. Um, We start to see them gain some awareness in terms of the fact that they've been sheltered, they've been lied to, they don't realize what the world is really like. Plus, uh, there's this other faction that I haven't mentioned, kind of a, a rebellion, if you will, against this who, um, this religion and these seven sons that are so against it. They're willing to kill. They're willing to assassinate these seven sons um, because, in their mind, they're doing what's best for the world and the people that that live in it. So, um, we've already seen in previous issues that there aren't seven sons anymore. Some of them have been uh, have been taken out. So. Uh, it does seem like at least one of the sons, if not more, uh, that are left, are, are discovering that they've been lied to, they've been exploited, they've been uh, manipulated. So it's a big story. I I struggle to uh, read it as these monthly installments um, in terms of just how complex it is. Uh, I, I I mean, I don't struggle to read it, but I I I do think that this might be an instance where this might have been better suited to come out as a big trade or uh you know a story all at once or maybe even instead of i don't i don't even know how many issues this is supposed to be or maybe it's supposed to be an ongoing um but even if that's the case i i feel like it might be one where they should be using the model that uh Lazarus risen i think it's called or Lazarus rising that really awesome um series that continues Lazarus from um Greg Ruck and Michael Lark, where it comes out, uh, you know, only four times a year now, but you get a big chunk of story. It's like 60 pages plus, plus back matter. They come out like 80 page, uh, books. This might've been better suited to that, to get, have a bigger chunk of story just because it is paced a little slowly. Plus the, the ideas are so complex, um, that again, I think reading it in bigger chunks, you get more out of it. Um, so I think if I went back right now and read the first three all together in one sitting, I would probably get more out of it than I've gotten by reading the first three issues one one a month for the past three months. But that's probably true of a lot of books these days, uh, but I just wonder about that one again because it, it it is more complex, certainly more complex than most books that are out there on the stands these days. All right, up next we have another aftershock book where starships go to die. Number three. This is from writer Mark Sable. Alberto Locatelli is the artist. Juancho does the colors, Rob Steen on letters. Uh, we talked at length with Mark Sable about this book. Uh, again, another sort of alternate history of the United States where uh, the, the earth is sort of failing and we we'll need to go out and find another place to live. And the um amazingly complex feat of uh engineering and uh, scientific technology that was the ship that was to go out and find a place uh in the galaxy for us to live mysteriously returns to earth and crashes in the graveyard of ships which is basically the place in the ocean that's furthest from any uh land or uh or human settlement or civilization and we find out that there have been other ships throughout the years, which is a very big surprise, um, Nazi spaceships, uh, Civil War spaceships, like wh- like what's going on? These people weren't out there traveling in space back then, at least not that we knew. And then something malevolent being underneath the water, like maybe they did go out and find something and what this entity is, we don't have any idea, but this salvage crew that's attempting to go and um, salvage this very advanced spaceship, uh, partly because they want to save the world, partly because one of them wants to to be the first African astronaut and had a chance to do so, but then lost that chance in the most recent uh, world war. Um, so everybody's got their own uh, motivations here. Again, it's a big cast and uh, and complex ideas with these different factions the US China these basically pirates that are trying to beat the the superpowers to that spaceship and you know claim it for themselves and behind this or maybe in front of this uh political background and um political maneuverings and and complex situation that's going on in this world we have this monster who doesn't care doesn't seem to care about which side you're on, um, but has his own uh, ideas. And it's clear that this thing has come from space. And I I get a very much a thing, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing, which was a remake, I think of a a previous horror movie, but uh, is very well known. But I get that feel, right? This idea that these characters are, are trying to survive, trying to complete the salvage mission. And whilst they're fighting amongst themselves and fighting off uh, the U S government or Chinese government and, you know, racing against the clock to try to make this salvage mission a success. We've got this horrific monster whose motivations we don't really know. Maybe it's as simple as he just wants to kill, or he just wants to feed on uh, other humans. Um, and so again, very complex, very fast paced, very fast paced issue here uh, and for a complex story and that I have no idea where it's going to go. That's another one of the things that I love about this because uh, it started off seeming to be very much about those different factions here on Earth. And then you just get a hint of something supernatural, something otherworldly at the end of the first issue. And then that expands in the second issue and expands even more here uh, as the salvage crew that's left, this crew of pirates, all start to become aware that there's this entity, this being, this alien, whatever you want to call it, that is uh posing a threat to them, maybe a bigger threat than the US or China or anybody else uh, who's trying to to beat them to salvaging this spacecraft. So it's a fantastic book. The Locatelli art, it's a little bit stylized, but it definitely works, especially with the look of this monster who's multi-headed, like as he feeds on, meets new humans and feeds upon them, their head minus the eyes, becomes a part of him um, as he manifests himself. So it's a pretty unique look uh, and it definitely works. The Wancho art talked a lot about the colors um, from Wancho with Mark Sable when he was on Um, and the the darkness of the palette suits the idea of being underwater. Obviously it suits this idea of being a a book um, leaning more toward horror as we're going along, and uh, this idea of just menace that uh, we're feeling with this entity as it becomes more and more powerful after eating human after human. <laughs> so we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, okay, up next, we have Daredevil. This is issue, I think we're up to issue number two, but it's also legacy issue number 650. So it's a big, oversized issue. The main story is written by Chip Sadarsky. Marco Cicchetto is on the line work. Uh, Matthew Wilson does the colors. We've got Clayton Cowell on letters. And uh, there's also a couple of backup stories. The first backup story, uh, and I should also mention that even in the main story, when Daredevil is sort of remembering and flashing back through his life, we get a, a series of pages that are by very famous uh, Daredevil artists over the years. So we've got one by Alex Malieve. We've got one by Chris Somney. We've got one by John Romita Jr. So that's nice to see some of these classic Daredevil artists get a chance to, uh, revisit the character. Uh, there's also, as I said, some other stories. There's a story called the hand by Ann Nesenti that Chip Zdarsky is actually the artist on. And Clayton Cowell does the letters, there's an, a really fun mini Marvels Daredevil story from Chris Jeruso, which is a lot of fun. There's another thing here that I really, really enjoyed. at the In the back of the book, there's a cover gallery that basically shows all 649 previous, or actually, no, I take that back. It's all 650. It has the cover um, for issue 650, the issue that I'm talking about. It's uh, contained in that cover gallery as well. So if you're curious, you need to have a checklist, how do we get to 650 issues of Daredevil? You can go to the back and check it out. In terms of the main story, uh, very emotional, as we've come to expect from Chip Zdarsky when he does Daredevil. Um, This idea that Matt's had this guardian angel uh, in name, if not in deed, uh, throughout the years, because certainly when you look at what Matt's been through over the years, you wouldn't think he has anybody looking out for his, best interest, right? He's been through so much. And of course, dating Matt Murdock is maybe the most dangerous thing you can do in, in the Marvel Universe. So this idea of uh, one of his former um, classmates in college having these abilities and why he does what he does is very, very interesting. So while we still have lecture off with the hand or the fist, rather, uh, training to take on the hand, we're getting... um a different look at Matt and what's going on and who this guardian angel type character is. And I really enjoyed not only the emotionality of the story, but how this is a bit of a retcon with this character showing up here, how Zdarsky does such a great job with that. I sometimes have problems with retcons. I've talked about it before when you retroactively go back and add something into a character's continuity and it's the, the idea of it is just full of holes. Like you just have to sort of grit your teeth and bear it and go, well, if this person was present at the, you know, origin of the character and the character has been around for decades at this point, why was it never brought up? So that just doesn't make sense. You know um, like the idea of Rogel Czar being responsible for the destruction of krypton that just doesn't make sense the idea of the court of owls operating for the entirety of batman's um career bruce wayne's career as batman in gotham city and for him not to discover the court of owls is there when he's supposedly the world's greatest detective like i have a problem with that like if this group has been operating uh you know, in the city, uh, the uh, Invisible Mafia in, in um, action comics from Brian McAbenis is another example, right? Like if Superman is as powerful as you make him out to be and as smart as you make him out to be, much like Batman with the Court of Owls, how could this Invisible Mafia be operating for years under his nose? Like it just doesn't make sense. But what Zdarsky does here with introducing this character, um, well, I mean, he introduced him previously, but Tying in this particular issue, tying this character into the history of Matt Murdock, he does it in such a way that you completely understand why this character hasn't shown up before now, why Matt hasn't been aware of him, why we as the readers haven't been aware of him, and why we are aware of him now. He, like Zdarsky does a fantastic job of explaining that, and it's fun because it go- it goes back and it, you can go back and reread the most important events in – the history of of Daredevil as a character, and with this knowledge of this character and and what he's been doing and the choices he's been making, it gives kind of a new perspective or new nuance to those events. That's the best kind of retcon. That's the best kind of storytelling when you're building on an existing character, when you're uh, respecting what's come before and you're with your current story, even enhancing what's come before by introducing new concepts and um, and building on the character emotionally and logically. And that's exactly what Zdarsky is doing. So, man, I was so disappointed when Zdarsky w- was named to be taking over Daredevil because I knew Charles had more del- Daredevil stories to tell. I love the lawyer aspect of it, the law stuff that uh, Chip or, or that Charles would bring in rather. Um, and again, I, I do I do wish that Charles had gotten a chance to tell more dare, Daredevil stories. But that being said, I'm not disappointed in the direction that um, that zadarsky has been taking. It's just fantastic. And the Marco Cecchetto art, uh, he, in my mind, is going to go down as one of the best Daredevil artists. Um, you know, maybe when they get to issue... 700, 750, 1000, whatever, whatever anniversary issue they decide to celebrate next, where you might have some pinups or pages or whatever done by classic Daredevil artists. Ciccetto's moved on by that point. I definitely would expect, hey, we got to be sure we bring Marco in because his art style, his line work, definitely uh, he's got a recognizable era for Daredevil. So he's he's absolutely fantastic. Just Just love it. Uh okay, up next we have Hulk number eight. This is the end of the Banner of War storyline. It's part five of five. It's uh Hulk versus Thor, written by Donnie Cates, uh plot and script with Daniel Warren Johnson. Art is by Martin Cocolo. We've got Matt Wilson on colors, Corey Petit on letters. Uh this was okay. It was fun. Um, you know, we saw this battle, and I didn't want to spoil when we talked about I think it was part four where Thor basically, we, we see a Hulked out version of Thor and we see the Hulk able to lift Mjolnir. So what you have when this issue kicks off and what we had in issue four was this epic battle that against two beings that are so powerful, their literal fight, the power that they're pitting against each other has ability to shatter worlds and perhaps even destroy the multiverse. You've got a uh, Thor-Hulk hybrid and you've got a Hulk-Thor hybrid, right? So you've got Thor with the power of the Hulk and Hulk with the power of Thor, and they're fighting against each other. And that's just a hell of a lot of fun. That being said, I do have a couple of issues with this, right? Like Donnie Cates always said from the beginning of this story that when it was all said and done, we were going to know once and for all who was stronger, Hulk or Thor. Um, I kind of had my doubts about that. It's certainly the most epic battle between the two because they both you know, have some level of the other's power and definitely seem to be the two most powerful beings in the Marvel Universe in terms of sure physical strength. Um, but – and I saw other people talking about this online with some level of disappointment. This isn't a fight, and again, it's it's to be expected. This isn't a fight where we finally get to settle the argument who would win in a fight between Hulk and Thor. That is not the case at all. If anything, this makes it as ambiguous as ever or perhaps uh, establishes as canon that they're equally as powerful, especially if you give them some measure of the other's power. So that was a little bit disappointing, although not unexpected, that at the end of the day, nobody really wins this fight. Uh, It's not a situation where the Hulk knocks Thor out or Thor knocks the Hulk out. That's not what happens at all. Rather, uh, it's more about the way... Thor sees Hulk, uh, in terms of having a better understanding of him, especially once Thor in, in a way has been infected with rage, you know, that uh, me talking about Thor having some measure of the Hulk's power. And so that gives Thor, uh, a a different perspective on who the Hulk is. Um, and that more than anything, as well as the the Hulk's tactical decisions are what kind of stops this fight, ends this fight and allows, um, these two characters to go their separate ways. The other thing that was a bit disappointing is, is it just me or does it feel like it's been about three months since we got part four? Uh, And I hate to say it and I hate to sound like a broken record, but when books are late, the stories lose all momentum. And I found myself like when this came out, when I saw it was out this week, I was like, Oh yeah, I'd forgotten all about this Thor Hulk uh, story. And in terms of the pacing and the tension and the compelling aspect of the story that made me want to know, Hey, what's going to happen in this fight? That had all gone away. And even though I was reading this, it didn't, it didn't come back. It wasn't like I dove into this and I was like, Oh yeah, I remember it was so great to know about this fight and see who's, who's going to win. I found that I barely cared. Um, And then when there isn't really a definitive answer, Uh, or definitive winner in the fight, you know, I care even less. So um, I'm a bit disappointed if I'm honest. Uh, You know, I've talked at length about how I wasn't really excited that Donnie Cates was coming on to Hulk, not because I don't think Donnie's a great writer. Um, I don't know that his writing is for me. I feel like a lot of his writing is, hey, wouldn't it be cool if, uh, and in that way, it's a bit fan-friendly. But I, again, and I've talked at length about wanting to get back to a more super heroic type of Hulk story, um, or or uh, if not that, then at least this idea of a man on the run, a la the uh, Bill Bixby Hulk series back in the day, this guy, this fugitive who's out there helping people. Those are my favorite kind of Hulk stories, either that or the, the Professor Hulk era where he was very super heroic. And it's just been so long since we've had anything like that that that's kind of what I would like to get back to. And so following the uh, Eternal Hulk story, that's what I wanted. I knew I wasn't going to get that from Donnie. Now, that being said, um, both Jay and I have talked about what an interesting idea this uh, spaceship Hulk thing or starship Hulk thing that Donnie Cates is doing can be. But that's even gotten put on the back burner for us to have this Hulk versus Thor fight, which that would have been worth it if it came out on time number one. And if we actually got an answer to who would win definitively and we didn't get either of those things. So this just, this feels like an interruption um, to the starship Hulk storyline that I may or may not be able to get into. It's still too soon to say. Um, And that interruption has been, that interruption itself has been interrupted by this delay. So I'm just a bit frustrated um, with, with this whole situation. Like I, I want, some good Hulk. He's one of my favorite uh, characters in the Marvel universe. I just want some good Hulk story. Um, and if this Donnie Cates run doesn't end up being for me and ends up being just kind of out there, um, doing cool Donnie Cates stuff, that's perfectly fine, but I need it to come out on time because if it comes out on time, it'll be over that much sooner. And maybe we will get a Hulk story that I'm more invested in. Um, and what I'm really hoping is going to happen is I'm going to get more invested in this Starship Hulk story if Donnie can pull me in. Because again, I want to stress that this isn't a poorly put together comic. It's not a bad story. This I it's not a bad idea. It's it's actually a fantastic idea, this Starship Hulk thing. Um, and I am fascinated by the different psyches and how Banner was able to sort of separate them and have you know the hulk's rage as the engine for the starship like those are ideas that that I am invested in and I want to see uh, answers to because it could possibly get the hulk to a point where he is I don't want to say back to normal but back to us being a superhero so that we can get the kind of hulk run that I that I prefer right so there is potential here and I'm invested in it but I I don't want it to be I, I never want comics to be late I never want books to take you know months off and I don't know if this was uh an issue with uh with the artists because the the usual artist on the book is not Martin Coccolo it's uh it's Ryan Otley so I don't know if it was an issue with with Ryan or he was sick I don't know if it was an issue with Donnie I don't know if it was an issue with printing I have no idea not privy to that information but that being said uh, I want the book to come out on time um and uh Again, I was disappointed that we didn't get uh, a def- definitive answer. Though I'm not surprised in, in the slightest. I will say that throughout this Hulk versus Banner, Banner of War storyline, we've gotten fantastic Gary Frank covers. Gary Frank, who uh, had a, a run on Hulk that was nowhere near nowhere near long enough back in the day, but it's still one of my favorite uh, artistic runs on the, on the Hulk. So. Anyway, up next, we have Iron Cat. We're up to issue number three of this. It's written by Jed McKay. Bere Perez is the penciler. Jordi Tarragona Garcia is the inker. Frank Diarmada on colors. Ariana Mayer on letters. This is a hell of a lot of fun. I love Bere Perez. His art is fantastic. He draws a sexy black cat. He draws a sexy Tony Stark, for that matter, And his battles are very dynamic. His panel layouts are very dynamic. Uh, This can at times be a very frenetically paced issue with this fight between Iron Cat and Felicia Hardy, who pulls out uh, a surprise both for the reader and for Tony Stark in this issue, as well as Iron Man himself. Now, we saw last issue, didn't want to spoil it when I talked about it, but we saw last issue that Iron Cat has – allied herself with sunset bane which just feels like a really bad idea even when you partner up with sunset bane you can't trust her sunset bane if you're not familiar she's an old stark foe very similar to stark owns a technology company makes weapons that sort of thing um but recently in the iron man run her body was destroyed much like tony stark she's become at times uh tony stark has been an ai or has been an artificial intelligence sunset bane is currently an artificial intelligence which in a way makes her even more dangerous Well, Iron Cat has teamed up with her, and it goes about as well as you would expect by the end of this issue. So the stakes have never been higher. This is really, really fun. Uh, I've talked at length, and we talked with Jed McKay. I told him when he was on here that I feel like he has made Felicia Hardy feel three dimensional more than any other writer has. In my estimation, Jed McKay is the Black Cat writer, the Felicia Hardy writer, She doesn't seem two-dimensional. She seems like a real person. You understand her motivations. You may not agree with them. You understand why she makes the choices she makes and does the things she does. And uh, I absolutely love this. Big fan of Jed McKay. Um, I like his version of Tony Stark, though it's not the version that we've gotten most recently in the the Iron Man run. it, It still feels like a version of Tony Stark. Um, That's not so different from what we've had recently, especially uh, as writers sort of drew from what Robert Downey Jr. did with the character. So this is a fun story. Again, tons of action, tons of battling and fighting in this particular issue um, and big stakes, big stakes going forward. So I'm very curious to see not only what's going to happen in terms of resolving this story, but what it means for Felicia Hardy going forward. Like, is she going to have, is she going to get the iron cat armor back? Is she she going to be a more formidable black cat in terms of having better weapons? I don't, I don't think so. I wouldn't expect so. I think Tony's going to, you know, commandeer all that stuff, reclaim it for himself. Um, Because really I think black cat fans, you don't really want to see her in a suit of armor. You want to see her doing what she does best, sneaking into places, not brute forcing. So um, but this is just a really fun series. Um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that the Black Cat series ended knowing they were going to start this Iron Cat series. Uh, and I hope in this Iron Cat series uh, is over that we do get another Jed McKay ongoing for Black Cat. Because, again, I just love the way he uh, that he writes Felicia. All right. Up next, we have another image comic, The Last Hawk, Story and Pencils by Philip Tan. Daniel Enriquez on inks, Frederico Blee on colors, Todd Takoya, I think that's how you say it, or Tochioka, uh, maybe? T-O-C-H-I-O-K-A, Tochioka, I think is probably how you say it. Uh, and then the script is by Brian Haverlin and Jimmy V, that Jimmy V being Jim Valentino. Jim Valentino being the creator of Shadowhawk. So this is indeed the last Shadowhawk story. And Philip Tan does a good job, if you're not that familiar with Shadowhawk, which I am not. Um, he does a good job of making it new reader accessible. So I imagine in some way, and I haven't heard a lot of people actually talking about this book, I would be curious. Uh, and if you're a Hawk fan, please reach out. Was this a satisfying conclusion for you? If this is really the last Shadow Hawk comic ever written, are you satisfied? Was this a good ending? Because it certainly feels like an ending, um, but it didn't really land for me. And that's only because I'm not invested in the character. I haven't read a bunch of Hawk books over the years. So it was kind of like, while I understood what happened and appreciated it, it felt like it should have landed with like this ton of emotional impact based on how long the character has been around. I know it's been a while since he's shown up, um, but he was around for a good long while in the nineties. Um, and based on that, uh, I feel like I should have, cared more. Now, I know personally I'm not really going to care because I'm not that invested in the character. Um, so, again, if you're a Shadowhawk fan, please reach out and let me know. Did this land with huge emotional weight for you based on the fact that this longtime character finally got his his last story or or the end of his story? I won't say his last story because obviously now you can go back and you know fill in the blank and tell any number of Shadowhawk stories because Shadowhawk, much like Spawn, There have been various iterations of him uh, over the years. All right. Up next, we have another uh, Aftershock book, Jimmy's Little Bastards, number one. This is from writer Garth Ennis. Russ Braun is the artist. John Kalis on colors. Rob Steen on letters. Now, if you didn't read Jimmy's Bastards, that was, uh, I think it was a five or six issue series from Aftershock a few years ago by the same creative team, and it was so much fun. It was a very irreverent kind of takeoff of James Bond. This secret agent slash womanizer who works for MI6. And uh, I'm not even going to spoil that because it's so good. If you haven't read it, go and read it. Russ Bronze art is fantastic. It completely suits the irreverent tone um, that Garth Ennis gives the book. Tons of kind of sexual jokes. It's It's definitely for mature readers. So, uh, and it's plenty bloody and gory kind of like, uh, the boys is so don't go in thinking that it's, uh for kids or, you know, thinking you can, this is something I can read with my 12 year old or whatever. No, it's not that at all. So this picks up uh, a little while after that, uh, with Jimmy sort of out of the loop in a lot of ways, based on kind of the trauma that he went through at the end of Jimmy's bastards and the things that were revealed, um, and he's uh, once again reunited with uh, his partner, or the partner he got in that Jimmy's Bastards series, Nancy. And there's a whole new menace that's going on and threatening the UK. And much like in the first series, turns out the menace may have familial ties to Jimmy himself. So uh, this is an oversized issue; it's forty pages. The Russ Braun art is. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Everything you need to know is established. Again, you will get so much more out of this if you've read Jimmy's Bastard, but you don't necessarily have to. You can pick this up and read it, not having read that previous series. Um, But the in-jokes are there. Uh, The fantastic art by Russ Braun is here. Great color work by John Kalis. Um, And some, some surprising events, especially the last panel, the last page. Here, which is going to, um, you know, just propel the story forward in terms of being a, a cliffhanger, and now, now, what? This is a big deal. Um, and I, I especially have to recommend this for anybody who is is British or from the UK. Um, I think you'll get even more of a kick out of this because it does deal with the politics of of Great Britain. It's Garthennis's, uh, you know, commentary on that in terms of you know, recent things that have gone on. And uh, in a way, I think it'd be cathartic for people of the UK to read. So um, again, just really fantastic. I can't say enough about how amazing this series is. Again, you will get more out of it if you've read Jimmy's Bastards. And if you haven't read Jimmy's Bastards, you can pick this up and check it out and you'll still get a lot out of it. But if you want to, go and pick up the trade of Jimmy's bastards. read that first and then read this, or maybe read this and decide, Hey, I love this. I want more immediately of this. Well, Hey, guess what? Then you can go buy the trade and you can get a huge chunk, a huge story of Jimmy Regent and Nancy for that matter, uh, five or six issues worth. And then you'll be in the same boat. I am where you're waiting for another month to go by. So you can read more of Jimmy's little bastard. So, uh, can't recommend it enough. Another big winner for uh, for Aftershock. Absolutely love this book. Uh, okay, up next, we have 20th Century Men. Here's another image comic. It's written by Dennis Camp. We have art by S. Morian. Letters by Aditya Bidikar. Uh, this is a bit of a dense read. Obviously, the 20th century is over. That was last century. And... This is a book that leans into ideas of Cold War, the U.S. against the USSR, Afghanistan. Um, I don't know what it is about this week, but another alternate history for the United States. Uh, We're looking at the end of the 20th century. We're looking at a super-powered president of the United States. We're looking at a sort of Iron Man-type Soviet hero. Uh, We're looking at cyborg soldiers. We're looking at some other entity that seems to be um, wanting to push the um, tensions between those two, maybe bring uh, about some sort of war or conflict between those two. So it's an interesting book. It's a book I don't think that could have been written until now, until we can look back on the Cold War and what it was and what it meant for a certain generation of people and politics in the United States. So uh, I'm sure. Dennis camp having lived through it. This is sort of his perspective on it. And, um, you know, maybe it's because I lived through it as well. Uh, and I remember, you know, having trouble sleeping at night, worrying about nuclear bombs falling from the sky. Maybe that's why this is resonating with me, but it is a bit of a, a complex book. It feels like a big story. Um, and it, it feels just a little bit messy, um, But that might just be, you know, again, the challenges of doing a first issue and introducing all these concepts. So you kind of just have to commit and read it. And I'm thinking as the story goes on that you're going to be able to look back or perhaps even go back and reread some of the early issues. And with the context of what happens later in the story, you'll get even more out of those early issues. So I definitely recommend checking it out, um, especially if you are, uh, you know, a child of the 80s like myself. All right, up next, another image book, Bloodstained Teeth. We're up to issue five. It's written by Christian Ward. Art is by Patrick Reynolds. Colors by Heather Moore. Letters by Hassan Otsman Elhow. Uh, I got to start with the colors first. We've talked about it every time we've talked about this book. Taking a horror book, taking a crime noirish book, taking a book about vampires and coloring it with these bright greens and bright pinks and bright blues and bright yellows and having it work. On such a fantastic level. This book stands out amongst horror books, amongst vampire books. It gives Patrick Reynolds' line work a chance to shine. It's not muddied up with you know blues and purples and blacks and browns and dark colors. Uh instead, that line work shines through the grit of it, the crime noir feel of the line work itself, the horrific scenes that are depicted by the line work get a chance to really jump off the page because of the uh, color work of Heather Moore. So absolutely fantastic book. It has continued to be Sloan as Christian Ward told us when he was on the podcast is a right bastard, uh, but somebody that you sort of root for, you know, even though he's a total scumbag uh, even though he's spent his career or life as a vampire, if you will, uh, taking money from others to turn them into vampires, lesser vampires that they call sips. You know, because you can take a sip of blood off them. Um, but they, th- this lesser version of vampire, they don't have the ability to create other vampires. So if they bite somebody, they're not going to create another vampire. But he's been doing this so long that the powers that be, the the oldest vampires, the vampires that are most powerful are worried about being exposed to the world at large. And so they've told Sloan, hey, you have 48 hours to go kill every sip that you've ever created. And so he's kind of against a rock in a hard place. And that's kind of where the the crime noirish feel comes. You know, it's not unlike a story where some guy's got gambling debts, owes a bunch of money to the mob, and they give him, you know, only a certain amount of time to go and uh gather the money and pay them off. So that adds this level of um urgency to the story because Sloan is working against a uh, a ticking clock. Uh, and then if that's not enough between the, you know, the fights and the action with Sloan trying to take out these sips, who even though they're not full blood, uh, full blown vampires uh, do, you know, they do have enhanced strength and reflexes and, and whatnot. So this isn't an easy task that Sloan has uh, had set before him. But in addition to that, In addition to him getting harassed by the sort of enforcer of the uh, ruling elite of vampires, you have that aspect of it. You have the political machinations uh, of these different factions of vampires. Plus, in this issue, we're introduced into an entirely uh, new storyline with uh, something, again, I don't want to spoil, but something that may bring a human faction into the story. And that's not even to mention the fact that Sloan himself seems to have a history, perhaps with humans. Um, you know, we saw something about an actress that was dying of cancer that he seemed to have great affection for. So perhaps is that somebody he knew before he was a vampire? Is that somebody that he had a relationship, tried to have a normal life sort of thing? Like, we, we don't know. That's a mystery still to be solved as well. So a lot of moving parts here, a lot of stuff going on and a fantastic story. Next up, we have Silver Coin number 13. This is the Michael Walsh project where he handles the line work and the lettering, and he brings in various writers, uh, the overarching uh, horror story being about this cursed coin that seems to find its way into the hands of various people and terrible and horrible things ensue. This particular issue is written by a writer named Johnny Christmas. I'm not really familiar with his work. Uh, it's colored by Tony Marie Griffin along with Michael Walsh. Uh, I didn't actually find this issue to be that interesting. It's about a, a woman who's pregnant and uh, her boyfriend who's the father of the child and they have somewhat of a falling out and the baby's born and Things are just horrific and gross, but there didn't seem to be much context. It felt like part of the story was missing. Um, and other than an excuse to show some really horrific body horror, I didn't really get it. I mean, I think a lot of the other uh, stories that we've had with Silvercoin have been more interesting uh, as opposed to this one where the coin almost feels like an afterthought and it's shoehorned into the story. Uh, so yeah, I wasn't a big fan of this one, but that being said, I am a, a fan of the series overall. So if you're reading it, if you like horror, you'll probably pick this up and enjoy it just for what it is, but it's not one of the stronger issues. Um, just have to be honest. Uh, all right. Up next, uh, I mentioned this earlier. There's a second axe issue this month or this week, rather it's death to the mutants written by Kieran Gillen. Who's writing the main series. Gui Villanova is the artist. Diho Lima does the colors. Travis Lanham on letters. This one's interesting. There's some narrator who I kind of kept waiting to find out who the narrator was. Uh, But I I think it's almost like it's just Kieran Gillen's voice telling us what's going on. So it is sort of interesting. I I mentioned in talking about the regular issue, how it sort of uh, repeated or was showing us events that we've already seen previously in previous weeks, but from a different perspective. This one sort of does the same, but it's almost like this is an objective perspective, right? The perspective of that narrator, the unnamed narrator, and we don't really know who it is. So um, this is a great issue to, to pick up and jump on. If you haven't been reading any of Acts so far, it gives a great explanation. If I had to pick – any perspective more so than than any other it does give a little more of the the perspective of the eternals rather than the x-men or the mutants uh you know it is death to mutants so that's what the uh, the eternals want it's what druid wants so uh i thought this was really solid if you've been reading uh, acts and you're wondering do you need to pick this up i would say probably not however uh i did enjoy this because I haven't been reading a lot of Kieran Gillen's Eternals, so I haven't gotten a lot of characterization for these characters. And even though I've been reading all the Axe issues, this did sort of catch me up and remind me of where everybody's at, what people are thinking, kind of what their attitude is toward this plan that the Avengers have, the Avengers slash Eternals have to um, to create a new God, celestial, whatever you want to call it, in their uh, in their image, so to speak. So uh, I do recommend this. I'm not familiar with this artist, uh, Gia Villanova. I thought the art was solid. It's not the cleanest lines, um, so it's not my favorite style of art, but I thought it told the story really, really well. Uh, okay, just a couple books left. Uh, Captain Marvel number 40. This is from uh, one of our favorite writers at the Comic Source, Kelly Thompson. Art is by Alvaro Lopez and Juan Figuera. Jordy Biller handles the colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. This is Trials Part 3. Absolutely love this story. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with what's been going on in this trial story, we haven't wanted to spoil. But now that it's a couple issues in, I guess we can say And you know, we know Carol Danvers disappeared a couple of issues ago. It turns out that she was kidnapped by basically this magic council, this magic tribunal of the Marvel Universe. We know in uh, the magic storyline uh, in a uh, few story arcs ago that Carol was looking for a way to stop the alternate future that she sort of lived through, where the enchantress, his son, uh, basically killed everybody that Carol cared about, and Carol came back to the present and she was trying to find a way to keep that possible future from happening and so um where you know so she basically wants a way to kill ove who's the son of the enchantress to stop that possible future from happening and she wants to use magic to do it so that's what gives her uh what places her i guess you'd say underneath the jurisdiction of this magical council they don't like the way she's abused her powers they believe that she's overstepped and really this is all sort of pushed by the enchantress herself who feels wronged Agatha Harkness is sort of head of the council. We see Brother Voodoo there. We see Skarlowich, some other magical users. Uh, Ileana, Magic from uh, New Mutants X-Men. So they've got Carol in this sort of magical construct, almost like the magical equivalent of a, a holodeck. And they're trying to see if they give her a chance to make a decision, if she'd make a different decision or if she always kills Uh, She always thinks killing people is, you know, the easy way out, the right solution, violence, that sort of thing, so that she can have justice. Um, And what I love is they're not getting a definitive answer, so they keep putting her through it. And Carol's not aware of this when she's living it, right? Like they do tell her she is sitting in front of the tribunal and they tell her they're going to do this. But once they immerse her into this world, um, she doesn't have that memory. So – what I love is in because it keeps happening, same thing keeps happening over and over, and they can't really come to a conclusion. The magic, magical tribunal decides that they're going to allow the enchantress and Scarlet Witch to give a little influence, you know, to nudge her one way or the other. And uh, that's what this particular issue is all about. So I love that no matter what the story is, what Carol's being confronted with, she is sort of, um, unapologetically herself. And it's a great reminder that Kelly Thompson is my favorite writer of Captain Marvel, of Carol Danvers ever. I feel like she has a greater understanding of who Carol is than any writer that's come before her. So um, I love the resolution of this issue. I love what Scarlet Witch has to say, what Enchantress has to say and does is not really a surprise so in that way Kelly Thompson's very true to the characterization of Enchantress as well and i'm curious to see what happens next as far as the art i didn't uh i wasn't blown away with the art on this issue by alvaro lopez and juan uh, Fregera, like i have been in the past with captain marvel their style just isn't at, together maybe uh isn't quite as dynamic as i'm used to seeing captain marvel art be uh, i can't even really honestly tell it, it doesn't look like they're Doing art together. It looks like the first part of the issue is Alvaro Lopez, and then the last couple pages are Juan. Um, and I do like the art on the last couple pages better, but um, the colors are also a bit muted. So the art is not my favorite, but I very much enjoyed this story. And I can't wait to see what goes down next uh, because it does end on a little bit of a cliffhanger, which I, I won't spoil for you guys. Uh, so last book I'm going to talk about is a really interesting one. It's a one-shot. It's Avengers 1,000,000 BC. This is from writer uh, Jason Aaron. Kev Walker does the line work. Dean White on colors. Corey Petit on letters. It's been rumored for quite a while, a rumor whose seeds were planted by Jason Aaron himself, that Thor's mother is actually the Phoenix Force rather than Gaia. That's an interesting change from what we know. And this story gives that definitive answer. It's even right on the color revealed the Phoenix's connection to the birth of Thor. We know if you've, uh, or at least those that have been reading uh, the Avengers uh, BC or whatever it is, the, the old school Avengers, which I'm not a big fan of. uh, And I've talked about it of uh, making the retroactively adding the fact that there was an Avengers way before there was actually a Hulk or a Black Panther, or a Ghost Rider, or Doctor Strange, um, or Thor, you know, it's Odin, it's Phoenix Force, it's some different sort of Hulk, some ancient Ghost Rider, some ancient uh, magic users that has the eye of uh, Agamotto, some ancient avatar of the Panther God. I, it's an interesting enough concept, but in my mind, it diminishes what the modern-day Avengers did. Uh, or have done in coming together. So, that, you know, that's just my own personal thing. But if you are curious, we do find out what the Phoenix Force has to do with Thor. And I will say uh, Thor's birth, and I will say as much as I don't like retroactive continuity a lot of times, because it does, I feel like diminish things that have come before, or it doesn't make sense that we didn't find out about it before or sooner. Uh, I think this works. This doesn't, offend my sensibilities of Marvel history uh, or whatnot. So I think that this works on a lot of levels, but at the same time, it doesn't really feel necessary. I don't know why we need the Phoenix force to have been around on earth before Jean gray. Cause again, that just diminishes the Jean gray story diminishes the dark Phoenix story in my mind, if it was here and there were people that wielded the Phoenix force prior to Jean gray, Um, so I, while this works and was interesting, I don't know that it was necessary, but I guess that cat's already out of the bag. Uh, the art is pretty solid. It's very dynamic, not the hugest fan of the aesthetic style, but it does work. And the, the panel layouts, page layouts are probably my favorite. They're very dynamic. Um, I, I do like Kev Walker's art in general, but his line weights felt a little heavier in this than I'm used to seeing. Maybe it's, his line work along with uh, the color artists who maybe he hadn't worked with before uh, Dean white. So that might be uh, possible, or maybe they specifically made that artistic choice to have heavier line weights. Cause this is a story, you know, from a million BC, it's back when things were less refined. I don't know. Maybe that was a stylistic choice, but anyway, interesting enough story finally puts to bed the question of whether or not uh, the Phoenix force is Thor's mother. So let me give a rundown on some other titles that were available uh, for the week of August 17th, 2022 from ablaze, Promethe 1313 number two, which was originally a comicsology original from Andy Diggle. And Sean Martinborough, which um, I don't think is available on Comicsology anymore, but it's a very interesting story, and I do recommend it. From Aftershock Comics, Brother of All Men, number two, which I talked about. Jimmy's Little Bastards, number one, which I talked about, which is amazing. And then Where Starships Go to Die, number three. AWA has Newthink three of five, which has been an interesting series. Over at Boom, we've got Dune, The Waters of Canley, number four of four, bringing that miniseries to a close. Uh, from DC comics. And again, you can go listen to our DC spotlight for August 16th, 2022, and hear about all of these Aquaman and the flash void song. Number three of three brings that to a close Batman one bad day. The Riddler number one, which is one of the best comics, not only of the week or the month, but of the year of the past few years. It's absolutely amazing. I can't recommend it highly enough. Batman world's finest. Number six got Batman the night. Number eight of 10. Black Adam, number three from Christopher Priest. Catwoman is up to number 46. We've got the third issue of Dark Crisis, Young Justice. That's number three of six from writer Megan Fitzmartin. DC versus Vampires All Out War, number two of six. Duo, number four of six from Greg Pak. Flash is up to issue number 785 from writer Jeremy Adams. Harley Quinn, number 20. Nightwing, number 75. Swamp Thing Volume Two uh, has its trade paperback come out. If you're curious about that, from writer Ram V, and that's it for uh, DC. Over at Image, in addition to the books I already talked about, we've got Above Snakes Number Two of Five with art by Hayden Sherman. Uh, Firepower by Robert Kirkman and Chris Somni is up to issue number twenty-three, and Shirtless Bear Fighter, which was a very popular. Uh, Mini series has its second volume come out with issue number one of seven, and Walking Dead Deluxe is up to issue number 45. Um, and I think, let's see, there's a couple of other books I want to mention from Marvel. Dr. Doom, the Book of Doom Omnibus Hardcover is also uh, out from Marvel. Uh, Fortnite X. Marvel Zero War number 3 of 5 which I, I kind of fell off the fort I'm just not a, I'm not a Fortnite player and I kind of fell off that. There's a Miss Marvel and a Moon Knight series that's kicking off with a new number 1. The regular series of Star Wars from Marvel is up to issue number 26. The Mandalorian is up to issue number 2. We also have a new Ultraman series kicking off subtitled The Mystery of the Ultra 7 which is a 5 issue mini series. The first issue drops uh, and then we've got X-Force number 13 and X-Men 92, House of 92, number four of five, the penultimate issue of that series. So uh, those are some other books you may want to be on the lookout for uh, for the week of August 17th, 2022. I know this is coming out even after after that week. Um, apologies that it wasn't out on time. I had most of it recorded and then the rest just uh, time got away from me. So Uh, We are back onto a regular schedule, so be sure you listen to the most recent episode for the books that are coming out uh, this Wednesday and our DC Spotlights, as well as the return of Spawn Daily. So appreciate the support as always, everybody, and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us.